Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her udtalt med den franske klimaaktivist Camille Etienne. Hun er 25 år gammel og har en ret særlig historie, som gør hende til en ekstraordinært interessant klimaaktivist. Hun er nemlig født på landet. Hun er født og opvokset i det landbrug, som i de her uger protesterer så voldsomt mod den europæiske miljølovgivning. Hun har al mulig forståelse for deres frustrationer. Hun har også et bud på, hvordan man løser dem uden at svigte den grønne sag. Hun blev i 2018 for alvor aktivist, da hun blev talskvinde for den franske klimavælse en Pré. Hun har siden deltaget i forskellige store europæiske aktioner sammen med Louise Neubauer fra Tyskland og Greta Thunberg fra Sverige. Lige fra aktioner i Europaparlamentet til nogle af de store aktioner, vi har hørt om i Frankrig og i Tyskland. Hun er også særlig, fordi hun har gået på en af de bedste skoler i Frankrig, en af de såkaldte eliteskoler, og derfra kan fortælle, hvordan hun oplevede, at hun kom helt ude fra landet og var en fuldstændig fremmed i det fine selskab. Så Camille Tienne er vokset op og formet af de konflikter, der på en eller anden måde er blevet til klimabevægelsens store drama mellem landbruget og det grønne hensyn, mellem de affolkede landbrugsområder og de franske eliteskoler inde i Paris. Hun kender alt til de her spændinger og konflikter i samfundet, og hendes aktivisme adresserer det. Camille Tienne er også sjældent intellektuel. Hun har skrevet en fantastisk bog, der udkom sidste år, der hed Pour un soulèvement écologique, som altså betyder noget i retning af for en økologisk opstand. Hun mener tiden til afmagt og tiden til opgivelse og tiden til resignation er forbi. Hun mener, at der er masser af ting, vi kan gøre. Vi skal bare gøre os bevidste om, hvad det er og hvordan vi gør det og kende fællesskabets sande styrke. Der er til synlandet ikke noget, der skræmmer Camille Etienne, som er opvokset med udsigten til sneen på bjergene, og hun kunne se, hvordan sneen år for år blev mindre og mindre, hvilket også har formet hendes engagement. Samtalen med Camille er lidt speciel, fordi den starter med, at vi taler sammen over Zoom fra en café, og derfra løber hendes computer tør for strøm, og så genoptager vi den dagen efter. Så det her er en samtale foretaget i to tempi. God fornøjelse. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. Thank, thank you for you. your work and for your book, and thank you for being there. You give us hope and inspiration here. That's lovely. I hope so. <laughs> uh, just to give you a little context, The sense in the climate movement here is very much powerlessness. Your book is almost yeah. perfect for us because there was a sense of optimism and triumphalism in 2018, 19, 20. And now people are really frustrated and don't know where to go and what actions to take. And I think your book is very timely for us. So thank you for that. I want to ask you first about the glaciers in the town that you come from, because they play a poetic part, but also a very formative part for you. Can you tell us a little bit about what the glaciers meant to you and to your family and to the area where you grew up? Definitely. So it's uh, so there was the idea of landscape and how we actually, it's, it's dual, by the way, that uh, the landscape is part of us, like completely part of us. At the same time, we make this landscape. It means that when you come from the mountain, you know, we have a long history of really belonging to a certain place and to have a lot of family story belong, uh, linked to this. 
So, for instance, my mom is a ski. Um, she was a, she's an alpinist. My my uh, father is a mountain guide. Uh, my brother is becoming a mountain guide as well. So, my whole family. I was grew up with pictures of my grandmother in front of this glacier. Um, so I know, and actually, I, I speak at the very beginning of the book. My grandmother, she she was really uh, dear to my heart. And when she passed away, she wanted to pass away while looking at this glacier. Uh, so it's something that is really part of our history. And when you see this melting, it's not only that it's set for the climate issues and, and so on, but it's also something that destroys part of our identity. Completely. So how, how did you feel? Did you feel the vulnerability of the glaciers growing up? Did you witness climate change in your immediate surroundings at the time? Yes, concretely, because this is what we call the topo. So it's in the front part of my book. I was uh, in the, the, the graphism was inspired by this because, as I said, my, um, I come from a family of uh, climbers. And so you can actually have this topo. It it's, uh, leads you where to go. And you can actually see, um, like, there is a parking where you actually usually park your car or you start doing your, your, your alpine stuff. And uh, you can see from years to years that what was on the topo that my mom used to use that wasn't relevant from today. It's mean that it's mean that now it was written in the book that you can you can park your car and then you have like ten minutes walking. But when you go on the film at my age, you realize that you had to walk for one two hours. So you can actually see the ice melting. And there is also something that we call internal le neige éternelle in French. It's mean. It's mean internal snow. It's mean that there is a place where it's always wet. There's always snow there. And um, I was the first one of from of my mom, grandmom, uh, and and so on. That actually, my, that was the first generation that see this Belco. This is the mountain in front of my house where there were the eternal snow that were gone. So there was no eternal anymore. So the very essence of the of the world just were completely gone. Did you understand at the time the connection between what produces emissions and what was happening in in the landscape that your family for generations had been connected to? I don't think so. I think that I was lucky enough to have a mom and dad that taught me how to love nature. It's it's super silly and simple, but uh, it, actually that it's mean that it was our fridge, nature was also our playground, uh, it was our house, it was everything for us. So it was really part of our daily conversation and so on. But we did not necessarily make it a big thing, intellectually speaking. It's just that when I started discovering this piece by piece, I said I really thought that I want to go to the school where the political leaders uh, were taking the action that were really affecting my hometown. I, want, I wanted to go to replace them. And I wanted to know, okay, who is doing that? Who, is, who are those criminals? And I want to... You know, I want to be better than them. Uh, I don't want to make them stop doing that. It was simple. It was the thought of a, of a 12 years old girl, but it never actually left me. So here I am. And, and you did go to Paris and you describe in your book coming to Paris and you say it was like someone opened the door for you, but they didn't give you the, the codes to enter it. What was that like? I was feeling a bit embarrassed all the time, I, I think. Because uh, it, it's you know I wasn't I did not add the code like it means the way you're you you close yourself uh, I did not I was super silly for instance with when it comes to museum and stuff I had no cultural references so much because where in you grew up in um, a ski resort uh, basically there's not so much culture going on there so I was lucky enough to watch movies and stuff sometimes but if you don't have your parents that are professors or so on um, 
you you don't have the same it's not a cultures to you i mean you don't, you're not used to do it it's not something you do on sunday on sunday you go skiing yeah i was in a team of country ski in the club of my of my village so every sunday every, every time i had free time i was just going outside and train to my nordic my cross country ski uh, uh competitions so when i arrived there i was a bit of a curiosity i would say uh and for me there were also some sort of curiosity so at the same time, I really wanted to belong to them, but I was doing this a bit like inappropriately, I guess. Sometimes I wanted to be a bit more than what they expected me to be. Um, but then I, after years, I realized that my syndrome of imposter uh, wasn't relevant because I had good grades. I was like a had mentioned and so on. So I said, okay, maybe I can speak. Maybe where I come from, there is something to do with this knowledge. This might not be the academical knowledge you. This is valued, but this is not a type of knowledge that uh, adds something to the debate. Because when you know how to grow a carrot, when you know uh, how, to, how it is when there is a lot of snow at your place, uh, this is another tradition that is maybe super interesting also in terms of creativity, in terms of uh, adaptation. And this is something we need as a policymaker. I, I think for many here in Denmark, they've we've been kind of horrified by the conflicts that has arisen around climate policies and and the yellow vest in france they've become like the the symbol of that and those you know who claim to be responsible by acting are climate skeptics they will say well we can't go too fast we can't go too fast because you see what happened in france and now you see what's happening in germany and you saw what happened in 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 holland with their uh, election and there's this big sensitivity about this divide and i think it would be wrong for us to overestimate the differences between people here and the countryside. My family is an agricultural family as well. But I think it's also a divide that we must address to some extent. How do you deal Definitely. with this divide? Definitely. It was one of the biggest, I would say, intellectual intellectual challenge I had to face as a climate activist. But I took time to speak with those people to the yellow skirt in France. And I realized that actually it was rooted in the same place. It means that there is no climate justice, is there no social justice. And so when you realize this, you realize that this is a double injustice, meaning that um, the people that pollute the more are the ones that are less in front of the effect of climate change. So the more you are affected by climate change, the less you're responsible in terms of emission, because it's really linked to uh, social capital, it's really linked to uh, economical capital at, uh, at the end. So when I understand this, I realized that there's something in politics that we call divide to better govern. Uh, it was the divide of my school. <laughs> um, and so when you learn this, you, you, you realize that where they try to put like the climate activism on the side against, uh, for instance, the, the middle class that need the car to be working, it was great so that we can aid each other, but the, the power could stay the same. But what we realized that maybe fine, you need your cars to be working, but maybe we can work together on adding a better um, uh, bus uh, station or a better train station, or we could work together by making the plane text so that the, the upper class that go uh, to work by plane because they live in France, but they, they work in London, maybe they could be the one paying for the green transition. And when we, we start doing this um, alliance, it, it became way more powerful. So... Um... You belong to a generation that has been heralded as the climate generation, and for understandable reasons. I don't like this climate generation, Brent, for, for two reasons. One is that 
I'm absolutely convinced that all grandparents, they want the best for their grandchildren and that they are engaged in climate. And the other reason why I'm skeptical about it is that we tend to think that all young people are interested in climate, but what we see all over Europe is that there's a young generation driving nationalist policies as well. And you have in your generation, a lot of support also for, for right-wing politicians. So I'm skeptical about this climate generation. You are as well. What, what's your take on it? Uh, exactly what you said is that I was one of the figures of these ideas of climate of um, uh, climate generation. And when, when you look closely about the sociology, uh, it's actually false. It means that in France, uh, two out of three uh, volunteers in association all over the country is actually retired people. So it means that it's a fake news if you just look to the database, firstly. And then I guess that uh, it's an idea that is used to create the division in a, in a place where it's not interesting to divide, uh, in the sense that if it's me against my grandfather, it can't be me at the same time against uh, one of the top CEO of the fossil fuel company, you know? And I, I, we could actually observe this quite closely after the, the pandemic, the COVID-19, the COVID because in all the TV show and so on, you were you were having like the the one representative of the youth sacrificed youth, uh, and then you had like the boomer, you know, the OK boomer movement. Uh, but for me, it's not the the bad thing that we don't leave the world uh, the same way. Generation isn't something uh, relevant to actually understand what is at stake about climate change. Because if we look back to history as well, there's, there were there had been already a lot of uh, climate movement that were powerful. Thanks to our grandfather, to our grandmother, and what we actually called uh, rights or, or freedom or a thing that we take for granted comes from an history of fight, of civil disobedience, of, of activism. Um, so for me as a woman, I get the right to vote, but this is because it was a huge movement of suffragette, of women that had to fight for this right that I take for granted. So I think that each period has to deal with its own, um, I would say, challenges. And, and climate change is obviously a big one, uh, but we do need to have a lot of respect for our grandfathers and, and grandmothers and so on, and speak to them uh, better than just try that they are the one that we should shame for having letting us such a bad planet. Another thing that is an obstacle for many just to relate to climate change is the question of fear. And I, I meet a lot of people who says, well, I don't want to think about it because it makes me scared and I don't feel that there's any way out of this. It's just looking at something that's scary. Uh, but you, in, in your book, you have an interesting and I think a convincing point uh, about fear. You say that this shared fear will allow us to unite. This is my poor translation from French. Uh, <laughs> I, I, how do you do this in real life? You know, it sounds like a wonderful slogan. Yes, let's share the fear and unite. But how do you do this? I mean, I don't promote fears. Uh, better to not have fears technically in the world, but uh, it's also the idea that emotion for long had, has been, you know, taking apart from politics. It also comes from the history of patriarchy as the power were uh, mainly runs by men. And so they have this idea in patriarchy that uh, if you're rational, you're a rational man, so you don't take your emotion. And when we say in French, uh, someone is présidentiable, it means that it's, uh, it's someone that can become a president. It can look like a president. Uh, it's someone that is quite distant, you know, that is rigid, that is cold, that is um, 
um, that can just put his emotion apart from his mind, rational mind. And if you look at it, it's super scary because it's one of the things that, that put us in this situation is because uh, our policymaker can, uh, um, it, like they're able to take decisions that will affect people's life directly without even feeling like emotion. They can't feel the fears, they can't feel the, the distress of someone that have to, to sleep outside, that have to cross the whole Mediterranean Sea uh, to escape war and so on. They don't feel it in their own body, or at least they pretend not to. So this is a very scary part. And if you look into neurologic um, studies, the people that do not feel empathy are, uh, are the ones that are called psychopaths. You know, so basically, it's not a good idea not to have emotion. And in the, if you look from the Latin um, uh, racine of the of the world, emotion, motion is also the movement. So it's what makes us in movement. And we had this idea that fears is something that will throw us. Like I'm too scared, so I'm like like this stuck. But it is not true because you know, if there's a fire that is coming to my place, if I am not fear enough, if I don't feel the fear. I would just burn watching the fire and, and looks cool. Uh, but fears, it's what makes me organize in advance and maybe said, okay, I should take care of having a fire um, uh, education so that I can know how to, to react in case there's a fire. Uh, it would allow me to, mm, I, I smell something bad, I should have a look and I will be worried about something. So what I wanted to say is that fears and all emotion, not only fears, but also anger, but also joy, but also love, could actually be really good guide. Uh, and the last thing is that we need to make it something collective and political. It's not something that we should keep for ourselves. And there were this idea, you know, of um, what we call the eco-anxiety. Uh, in English, it's the same as well, so nostalgia. And the idea was that, okay, you know, there's a whole generation of, of young people that are so scared. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, young people that don't want to have kids because they're too scared of what's going on next. And Actually, it has been also financed, some group of eco-anxiety, eco it also has been financed by the fossil fuel industry. And when I find it out, I was like, at first, really surprised and shocked because it makes no sense for me. But then if you look closer at it, some of those climate anxiety group of, of speaking and stuff, you know, the advice that they give were, okay, maybe you should take care of it yourself first, you know, and maybe put yourself apart from the climate uh, action and cut with the, the news that gives you anxiety, just put trigger warning before everything. And it was a way to treat people like children. And even as the children, I would not like to be treated like this, actually. It's a less, lack, lack of uh, respect for me. Uh, because when you go to the doctor, you know, uh, and, and you have a disease, you want the doctor to tell you what you actually have to give you the, the concrete diagnosis. And then it would also let you choose between a different way you can, you can choose to cure yourself. You have the power to choose if you want to cure yourself or not, your cancer, if you want to do the, the chemotherapy or not, uh, but you don't want the, the doctor to lie to you because he wants to protect you from the truth. This is super, um, this is what has been used in, in dictatorship. So I, I think in democracy, it's great that we are not afraid of fears because what we are living is terrifying, that's that's truth. But we do have a power uh, to change our object of fear. And one of the things is that there is a difference between um, what we call in French, uh, la peur et l'angoisse, so anxiety and fears. And anxiety is a fear that has no object, that we could not identify the object. So if we want to turn our fear and our that uh, into something political, we have to address the object. Otherwise, it would just become an anxiety 
that will keep us close in our home and so that we make sure that there is no climate action that is that will be taken I think here, many here in our little nation would say, well, this distinction came from the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. Uh, you need to sing me the name. <laughs> and it was transported into French by Sartre, um, among others. For yes. many, I think today, the fear is about the lack of political capacity to solve. It's not, you know, I don't think people, the people that I meet and that we where we hear are not so much afraid about you know, climate change, it's a condition. We know we'll live with it for the rest of our lives. That there, it's not a battle we'll win. It's not a battle we'll lose. It will be a battle that keeps on being fought at, at all level levels. But what makes me, at least makes me scared, is the sense that our leaders don't believe in politics. It's not that they don't believe in science. I mean, I don't like that slogan, believe in science. You know, everyone knows that it's happening. The difference is whether you believe in politics and that's where your book is so inspiring because your book is all about surpassing that impuissance or sense of powerlessness yes exactly thanks for getting that and what's your strategy to because in this moment you know we felt that 2019 was the big moment of fridays for future climate elections and this is so stupid to say today and i'm almost 50 that we thought we won the discourse and now it's just about winning the battle now we've had that client denialism reinvents it, itself. Yeah. How do you overcome this uh, impuissance? It's a good question. Uh, but first, and for me, we need to understand where does it comes from. Uh, why do we feel powerless? And if you look back to history, once again, you realize that it has been part, uh, among other, other things, but a strategy by the fossil fuel industry. And on my book, I try to, to link this to the cigarette industry. And you can actually realize that they kind of use the same strategy. It's mean that first they try to say that it's not true, it's good for health. So they were at my grandmother uh, age, there were uh, um, there were advertisement that that advertising that said smoking is good for your health. So it's uh, basically the moment where the fossil fuel were saying, okay, it's just it would leave us a lot of freedom and, and so on. And you know, it's it's a really good energy. Let's let's use it. And then at the cigarette, they kind of try to lie uh, to people when, when you know, they couldn't lie so much about the, the fact that it gives um, a concert. Then they start to say, okay, true, but you know, everything gives concert. If you have a look closely and what they were doing for that is that they paid a study, real study, that, that wasn't fake news, they were real study that shows that, that this little um, uh, painting on the wall would give you lunch concert. That was true, but it was like so, if you look to the database and to the proportion, there was like so little concert that were linked to this. But as they were giving a huge amount of money on the research on that specialized topic, it became the main thing in the media. And so the media were saying, everything gives concert, so let's smoke. The industry, fossil fuel industry, did quite the same where they said, okay, that's true, climate change is real. First, they invent climatoscepticism. Climatoscepticism is an invention. It's not something that appears like it's something that was uh, uh, that was invented by the fossil fuel industry to disturb. But once you know, people start to understand that okay, something was actually going on. They try to say, you know, yes, that's true, it's warming, but this is not us, you know, and and this is it has been happens in histories and stuff. And um, so I cannot link those things and. Every time, and so the last, I would just uh, uh, give the example of fossil fuel on the street, the, one of their very last invention is the techno-solutionism. I don't know how you say that in English, but 
you know, when you're really focused into a technology uh, and what something that scares me the most today, and I think it will be the one of the main topics we're going to discuss in the coming years, is the geoengineering. Because my friends researcher that were at COP, they told me that specifically Norway and the United States are giving a lot of money into this kind of group. And they are already thinking of how we can send a specific things in the atmosphere to cool down or whether we can, um, you know, try to change the, the composition of the ocean. Uh, but it's, this is super, super scary because we do not know what could what could uh, happen after this. You know, we we play uh, like we're a musician, but we can't do this with the climate. It's an ecosystem. So the very sense of ecosystem is that once you touch something, you have like crazy things happening all over. This is the beauty of life. But if you play with that, you could have bad uh, bad surprise. Uh, so one of the things they are doing a lot is this. And so it gives the idea that me, uh, as, a, as a middle class uh, um, girls of 25 years old, I can't do anything because, you know, there will be bunch of really smart boys in Harvard school that will that will figure out something they will find the magic button they will find a crazy way so that we can we could keep going this world without changing anything it's just uh it just like depend on one or two years or maybe a couple of decades but you know they are in a good way and they will save us thanks to uh to their crazy intelligence so they were really focused on that and that is something that creates a lot of powerless because you were saying okay I can't do anything. Me, as a normal citizen, I can't do anything. It's a debate of very high uh, intellectual people that know precisely technology and so on. So this is one of the tools that has been used to create powerlessness. And once you realize this, once you realize it's also one of the strategy to kind of gain a little by little more years where they can earn money, it's, it's basically as simple as that. They just try to gain time. Then you realize, okay, we are going in the wrong direction. You know, we, we should just stop all this and stop cooperate with this shameless direction the world is taking. Um, so I would say the first very important step to go out of powerless, powerless is basically uh, to realize how it's created and who this benefits. There's a beautiful phrase in your book where you write about that, that the battle creates spaces where you have moments of uh, puissance And you say it's always collective. Uh, and it seems like it's spoken out of experience that you've actually tried. So instead of thinking we should feel powerful all the time, it's about creating these yeah. moments. Could you tell about one or two of these moments where you experienced that? Definitely. It was also addressing the idea, you know, sometimes I ask <coughs> by journalists as one, are you going to win or to lose? Uh, but it's not always about this, to be honest. It's also about doing this for the other generation memories. It's also for the idea of being at the right moment, um, in the right place, to play history, to make history, to belong to the good side of history. Um, and I remember when I was in Luzerat, it's a place in Germany. It was the biggest coal mine in all Europe. And there were this little village that were kind of resist uh, to the to the company. <clears throat> But the company wanted to, to just... Uh, you know, get rid of this village because there were a lot amount of lithium under this. And we knew, you know, it, we were going to lose this because it's been months that there were a lot of police of all Germany and even uh, about Europe police that came to help them. Um, and you can look, it was crazy. I never seen a landscape that crazy. You could see like for 
kilometers and kilometers just a wall and the big machine that were grabbing the, the hearse. And you know that this little village with is maybe 10, um, 10 trees that were left would be gone. It was just a matter of time. But yet we were 35,000 people at the same time in the cold, in the night, uh, uh, in the mud. And we, won't, we were there because we wanted to say, okay, maybe if we, if we lose this, we would have been, we would have resist. And so in history, people would know that once Germany decide, the day Germany decide to open the biggest coal mine of the whole Europe, there were 35,000 people that decided to spend the weekend there to, to send the message to the rest of the world that we will not let you continue that way with impunity. And maybe we lost this, but now every time they want to open a new mine or they want to open a new scandal or a new pipeline and so on, they have to think twice because they said, oh, it will be such a mess. <laughs> uh, one, one last example is that in France, we had a huge um, um, action with the A69. It was a highway um, and it was like a massive national thing. We had been a lot of action and so on. It just one highway, you know, in the south, but it was destroying a lot of uh, land and agricultural land and so on. So we had a big protest. And even if we lose this one, know that when the government want to do another highway, they better think twice because they know that it would cost them a lot of money because every day of action we will take, it would be like it's going to delay all the things. There will be a lot of instrument that will be, you know, maybe damaged and so on. Um, so we are gaining time and gaining some place as well. Well, I think that's a very inspirational way of thinking about these moments. I remember this scene in Luzerat. We were, of course, writing from, 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 from that as well. There's a, a sentence in your book that really stayed with me where you write, we must think of action as construction of an after that is already there. Pensez toujours l'action comme la construction d'un après. This is a very beautiful uh, sentence and it also alerts us to action in the climate or as you call it in French, uh, ecological movement is different than, 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 than all other actions, I think. How, how should we understand this action as construction? Um, it's also in the way would the action. So really concretely, it's been then when you go into that kind of places, uh, you experience the famous monde de demain, the, the, the well-known uh, world of tomorrow. You know, it was this fantasy this, the, about the world of tomorrow during the pandemic. We were all dreaming about what would be the tomorrow new thing. <laughs> uh, but actually you realize that some people actually experience this already in the daily life. We just don't put so much light on them. And you know, when there's like a Z, it's like, um, how do you say that in English? Z is like zone à défendre. It's where people uh, stay in the same place to defend a land, you know. Yes. And, okay, they don't have the translation number, you get that. Um, and the thing is that in France, the Ministry of Interior decided, so the security, decided to do a map of all the possible places where this could happen. And they were really scared because they said, during our government, we make sure that no ZAD will take place in France. And if you think about this, it was weird because it's just a bunch of people that live in a place. It's not such a big deal. But they represent the world of tomorrow already there. They represent the idea of um, doing another economy, of doing another way of doing agriculture, another way of doing democracy, another way of living among genders. And they, they implement this in their own bodies. You know, they, they create this concretely on the land. And so that was 
that is exactly what was scary for the for the power. So in in our fight, we are also constructing already today concretely what we the idea we have for the for the coming years. Uh, but it's also obviously something about the long time, I would say. And as I said just just previously, um, I'm not always fighting for winning. I'm always fighting from what seems uh, just for me. It's a very idea of morality and justice. And I think it's a duty as human to live your life through those two principles so that we can give to other generation to come that says, okay, you know, in the French history, we took a look about resistance. Uh, and so the idea for me, it, it's super, uh, I would say, reassuring. Then yeah. when I think about my history and when I think about my country, that did really bad choice, that did really a criminal choice that I don't agree with, I can think about those French people as well that decided to resist, even if they lose, even if there were few people, even if they, they've been criminalized, killed, they can ask crazy people, they were there to resist. So I can belong to a certain story and to and refer to a certain story. And this is super powerful because you never feel lonely. So it's also, I'm also doing this for the next generation so that when they will have to face their own um, uh, challenges, they could maybe think about us saying, okay, there were this bunch of crazy people that nobody really support, but they were there and okay, I'm part of, I'm just continuing the story. I think something that's very difficult in the climate movement or the ecological movement, as you call it, is how to appeal to the rest of the world. Because one part of me thinks that we should make very broad alliances, that we can't, this is such a huge change. So you need to, in the words of Elizabeth Wathuti, make people open their hearts. This very, very strong open your heart, which is loving, appealing to those who, who are not in power. And, and instead of, you know, threatening and seeing them as someone who don't care, yeah. trying to make emotional alliances with them. The other part of me thinks that, well, they've known for so long. They've known for so long and they didn't want to care about it. And we're desperate and we want to show them that their cars and their, their how they live is, is totally de destructive. What do you think of, of this strategic yeah. dilemma of the movement? Definitely. I would say that uh, I overcome these issues by addressing this uh, politically. It's meant that for me, I'm not angry against the, the middle class or lower class workers that has to take his car to go to work because he has no choice. I'm not angry against, you know, my uncle that loves uh, eating a lot of meat because it, it's really part of what he believes is to be a real man. Um, so I rather make fun. So sometimes humor is a really good tool, uh, but also try to take a bigger pictures and address the idea that uh, if we would have concrete law, for instance, that make the fact that train is less expensive than the plane, Obviously, a lot of young people would like to go in Erasmus and travel on the weekend by train and not by taking the plane. Uh, but we the, um, we play a game whether the rules are inequal. It means that today being ecological in your daily life isn't for everyone. It's costly in time, in money. It should not be like this. Like destroying the world should not be the most easiest thing to do. It should be the, the, the harder things to do. And it's actually the contrary that happens. So that's why we need to change how the rules are working so that it will be way easier for people to follow a good way of living in the world. I want to ask you also about uh, the Stop ECOP movement, because I think it's been a very learning experience for us here in Denmark. We just hey. gave an award to them uh, to Stop yes. ECOP because they were here. 
And I thought what was very good about them being here, of course, they're extremely courageous. You know, they put so much more on the line than we do. And I was so happy to meet them here. And they told about what you've been doing for them in France. And this, that you could use your privilege in a free country to take on Total, that is financing this horrible, horrible pipeline. And I think it's also extremely meaningful because you can actually help someone who really needs it without any imperialistic attitude of now let's yes. let's tell you. So what did you learn from, from working with the ECOP and how do you see their actions? Uh, actually, it started a long time ago. It was, um, so there were some activists that came uh, in France and they were with my friend Louisa Nebauer from Germany. And so they came and they said, okay, I mean, do you, have you heard about this ECOP? Are we going to France? And I was like, what? No, what? I don't I don't know what's that. And they were, are you serious? It's like happening in your country. It's your company that is doing that. And I realized that it was a non-event in France. Nobody had ever heard about this. It was really low niche topics for one NGOs. And I was like, okay, this is something big. And so we try first to address the state, but then we had no nuances and so on. So we did our best to have a lot of uh, growing movement about this. Uh, um, and also to, you know, it was really interesting to say, okay, what can we do in our country to fight our company that want to take other people, Ugandan people, oil to sell it back and make money out of it. So it's a very good example of neocolonialism. And so we don't want it to fight uh, for, to, for saving uh, Ugandan people. We're just wanting to fight against our company that we're doing neocolonialism. And so that was really interesting to, to work with a, a very different cultures. And uh, also it makes me realize our privilege we were also in France. I mean, it, we were criminalized as a climate activist. Um, you know, even yesterday there were a, a justice case against the organizers of the basin, uh, the mega basin, and they, they had uh, to go to jail. Uh, so it's big things, and and obviously uh, we are we have like police violence and so on. But yet, if you look uh, to to Uganda, the people that fight the same way as we do, so it's been just we sign saying stop ECOP, they had been to jail like a lot of time, a lot of time already. And every every month we have a bunch of six, seven climate activists there that are in jail, and that we have to do our best to make them uh, free, uh, asking the embassy and so on. It's also uh, makes me think that I can't complain so much and uh, about the fact that sometimes it's hard because uh, you get arrested on Twitter and and, and so on. Uh, but so you, you, yeah, first it helps me with this. And also it helps me uh, about the idea of thinking globally and uh, thinking the, um, yeah, about the, the link we can have between climate movement all over the place. And that was super powerful because after something we do is that we addressed the bank that were financing the pipeline, and then we, we address the company that were insuring the pipeline. And so we had to go to London, uh, start a movement there. Then there were movement in Japan. There were movement um, in Germany as well, uh, in many places. And that was super powerful that we have to work with people from all over the place and start something that we're raising, uh, you know, in, in every country. Uh, so I learned a lot from this, and, I, and I'm still super, super grateful and impressed by the the, the courage those people have. Yeah, I thought that was so inspirational, attacking the political leaders, the financial institute, the fossil fuels, all the powers, all the center of uh, powers. Uh, I have just one last question for you, which is near the end of your book. You, you write that the ecological activism cannot be against freedom. It must reinvent our understanding of freedom. 
And I think that is so much at the core of the climate movement because people experience it as saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you'll have to sacrifice this. So tell us a little bit about what, how we should uh, reconquer the concept of freedom and what that means to you. Yes, it's um, because I don't know if you experienced this in your country, but we had a lot of argument that were saying, okay, but you are, um, you want to uh, take us away a part of our freedom. Uh, you are against everything. Uh, so you're just going to, uh, you're going to be a, a green dictator. And uh, I, I said, uh, it was for me really important to say, I agree with you that freedom is one of the main value I'm fighting for. But just uh, it's for this freedom that I'm fighting against climate change. Uh, it's it's in honor of this freedom because what is biggest is to take to be able to take your car whenever you want, to be able to uh, take your private uh, jet whenever you want. Or is it to actually live in a planet where you can live? Is it uh, uh, to have a generation that can consider itself as having other generation coming uh, that is allowed to have kids? What is bigger for you to 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 breathe pure air or to be able to do barbecue whenever you want? Um, so if you just, uh, you know, think concretely, obviously the very sense of society and of democracy is that we accept some uh, restraint in order to have a bigger freedom. This is the very essence of political uh, society. You know, we decide that, okay, I'll give you a bit of my freedom into a common uh, organization. For now, it's a state, these other kind of organization, or it's an anarchy, uh, but it's the idea that we give a part of our individual freedom in order to create together the biggest one. So it was really important for me to address that, saying that we are fighting for freedom, we're also fighting for peace. Uh, and especially now, it's it's a big topic because uh, uh, people often said that we are the ones that are in favor of conflict, you know, that we, cre we create chaos, but it's actually the other way around. We are um, trying to organize us in advance of the catastrophe uh, in order to avoid some chaos. Chaos is already here, but we try to avoid that it becomes systemic, you know. So we are actually trying to to fight for peace, for order and for freedom. And the last one I was talking is peace is also because we know that a lot of conflict is linked to uh, the fossil fuel industry. If you look uh, about Ukraine, it's really much about that. Um, and that uh, fossil fuel industry and our dependency to fossil fuel has been financing dictatorship for so long. We know also that the more, the less we will have resources, the, the, the biggest the conflict might be, uh, because we need to fight for these resources that will be lower with more people. Um, so obviously we are, we are going through a world where conflict must be bigger uh, at the time that climate change become bigger. So if we try to avoid climate change right now, if we try to to lower uh, uh, this, um, it, we can actually hope to live in a world where peace is really a world that is uh, describing the uh, describing the, the truth and the, the world we live in. Well, thank you so much, Camille Etienne. You're such an inspiration for this battle and making something seem possible and hopeful that could be so scary. Thank you so much for your thank time you and for your work. Thank you so much. Bye. A bientôt. Det her var min samtale med Camille Etienne. Bogen, hun har skrevet, hedder Pour en soulevement écologique. Den var produceret, redigeret og sat sammen af vores helt vidunderlige kammerat og hjælper, Mads Adam Wehner. 
Og det her var den sidste udsendelse, som Mass han kom til at sætte sammen. Han skal nemlig videre i sit liv og søge et nyt arbejde. Vi siger tusind, tusind tak til Mass for alt, hvad han har hjulpet os med af inspiration, redigering, gode råd og små venlige korrektioner. Vi holder vinterferie i næste uge, hvor jeg er i USA og dækker valgkamp og se på, hvordan klimakampen ser ud og prøver at finde ud af, hvad det er, der stadigvæk gør, at Trump han rykker så voldsomt i sine egne vælgere. Og prøve også at finde ud af, hvordan det kan være, at USA's makroøkonomi er så fantastisk, samtidig med, at de amerikanske borgere og nu jo vælgere er rasende over deres økonomiske tilstand. Det betyder, at der ikke er nogen langsom samtale i næste uge, men vi vender stærkt tilbage ugen efter vinterferien, hvor jeg har talt med den israelske forfatter Yossi Klein Halevi. For nogle år siden udgav han en meget fin bog, der hed Breve til min palæstinensiske nabo, som var hans forsøg på at skrive sit syn på konflikten fra Israel og invitere palæstinenserne til at svare igen. Yossi Klein Halevi er et lidt andet sted i dag, fordi efter Hamas massakre den 7. oktober, mener han, at krigen er den eneste løsning for Israel. Det er en stemme, vi sjældent hører, som er en humanist og en mand, der tror på tostatsløsninger, vil freden med palæstinenserne, men som i øjeblikket kun kan se krigen som mulighed. Det kommer I til at høre, når vi er om på den anden side af vinterferien. Tak herfra, tak især til Mads Adam, og tak til alle jer, der lytter med.